Let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 7. We are just moving right along in this epistle. In this, uh, epistle. Chapter 7. Going to be looking at the first six verses together now. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this precious treasure that you have given to us by your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your supernatural work that you accomplished through your word by your Spirit of causing dead hearts to live and those who are bound in sin to be set free. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us this morning through your word, by your spirit. Lord, that we, your people, would be transformed evermore into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that even those who have come here this morning, whose hearts are far from you, would be granted by you saving faith and repentance from sin. Pray, God, that you'd be glorified in this time together, and I pray for myself as I proclaim your words, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul's letter to the Romans is an amazing gospel tapestry, as we have already seen just through six chapters. It is full of gospel realities and gospel promises, gospel achievements, and gospel demands, each one of them woven together perfectly, each one placed exactly where it needed to be placed. And Romans chapter 7 is one of those gospel realities woven into that beautiful tapestry. It is in, in exactly the right spot. It is written exactly the way that it needed to be written. And so it can't be, as part of that tapestry, just ripped apart and dealt with all by itself on its own, apart from everything that has been said before. It's not a standalone, isolated theological topic that we can just lift the things Paul has to say about the law out of Romans 7 and just consider it on its own with no relation to anything that came before it in chapters 1 through 6 or anything that follows after it in chapters 8 through the rest of the letter. The Holy Spirit has placed it here perfectly for us to be considered in this context right here after chapter 6 and right here before chapter 8. So we need to consider 
what we have seen that leads us to this place. Chapters one and two, Paul really shows us exactly how sinful we are, how great our need for salvation, for justification is. Paul has, has brought us to the edge of this abyss and he has helped us look down into it. This, this abyss of sin and rebellion and condemnation from God. And he's placed every single human being locked in a prison cell at the bottom of this abyss in sin, unable to save themselves, but having no desire to save themselves, happy in their sin, because they are, as Paul has told us, enemies of God. He says they're even inventors of evil, constantly coming up with new and creative ways to rebel, that they are promoters of evil, celebrating others when they rebel. In chapters three and four, he brings to us this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, this major theme that is driving the book of Romans. God saves sinners, not because of our righteousness, which does not exist, but by Christ's own perfect righteousness, which we receive not by working, not by trying harder, and not by being really smart. We receive Christ's righteousness. It is credited to us on the basis of faith alone through grace alone, and that is all. Chapters five and six then have been dealing with fruit of this justification. What happens to the believer when he has been rescued from that pit, broken free from his solidarity with sin and Adam, and placed in Christ? Well, we have peace from God. We are free from sin. We are united to Christ, and because we've been united to Christ, we have security. We belong to him. We'll belong to him forever. This uniting to Christ, this filling with the Holy Spirit, leads to a comprehensive holiness in the life of the believer. Paul has been in chapter 6 exploring this holiness in the life of the believer, what it is, this process of sanctification where we have been freed from sin and now are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And page after page, what Paul has been showing us is that salvation totally transforms a person. You're not converted, you're not saved, and you stay in that pit wallowing in the filth, loving the filth, rebelling against God. No, the person who has been saved is totally transformed. And so now Paul's going to expand on that in chapter 7. In fact, he's circling back to something he said in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 14, Paul tells us, For sin will have no dominion over you. This sums up the freedom that we have in Christ. We have been set free from sin's dominion because sin once did have dominion over us. And then he adds this, Since you are not under law, but under grace. Now this verse, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. That verse and many things that Paul says in, verse, in chapter seven have been terribly abused. These statements have been twisted and perverted to say, so just do whatever you want. You're under grace. You don't need the law. You don't need a list of instructions. Maybe it sounds like this, don't judge me. I'm not under the law, I'm not under your legalism, I'm under grace. This is a false teaching that's been around for a long time. It's called antinomianism. It literally means against the law. We think somehow the law of God has become bad and grace has freed us to just do whatever we want. And so Paul is now circling back to this statement that he made just, just a few paragraphs previous he wants to make it abundantly clear for us now, what does it mean to not be under law? So he's going to do that now 
in these verses we looked at by giving us a truism, just a, a true statement. He's going to illuminate that. He's going to explain that with an illustration. He's going to follow that with an application of this truth to our lives. And then one final declaration. And so that's how we'll be looking at this passage. But as we dive into it, we need to be very careful to remember what it is that Paul is doing here. We have to focus in on Paul's main point or else we're going to get sidetracked. This is something that happens with Romans chapter 7 and these verses that we're dealing with this morning in particular. In other words, we're going to have to be careful not to make too much of the details. That's not something I often say when it comes to reading something that the Apostle Paul wrote. We ought to dive into every little detail. But when, when an illustration is given, illustrations work the same way that the parables of Jesus work, which is an illustration and a parable are both making one point. There's one point that's being made from the illustration. There's one point that's being made from the parable, and if we push too hard on any illustration or any parable, they're going to break down on us. we got to focus in on the one point that is being made. The illustrations and parables are not meant to be thoroughly dissected and look for meaning in every possible image and every possible word that is used. So for instance, when Jesus wanted to teach that, that what matters is not the size of the faith, like false teachers of the prosperity movement say, But it's not a matter of the size of our faith, but it's a matter of the object of the faith. He said, consider the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. Well, guess what? The mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, and that's something that the opponents of Scripture will use to go, now look at this. here's Here's your omniscient God right here. He didn't even know that that's not the smallest seed because he was just a man of his times. So was Jesus wrong? No, of course not. It's an analogy. It's an illustration. It's not a science lesson. Jesus wasn't trying to make a point about the size of mustard seeds. He was trying to make a point that it's not the matter of the size of our faith. It's a matter of the object of our faith. Likewise, some will take the parables of Jesus and try to do this, dissect every little point and try to turn them into something that they're not. And so one of the most common and humorous is to take the story of the Good Samaritan and assign a specific meaning to each leg of the donkey. Now, why did he have a donkey instead of a camel? What did the forefront left leg represent? And people have done this, and it's foolishness. And it's not how parables and illustrations work. So we got to be careful not to do that to Paul here because people do this and it leads to some interesting conclusions that they jump to that are used then to abuse people. So Paul's making an illustration here and he's making one point with it when he makes this illustration. We need to, to avoid over-interpreting the analogy he uses and focus on the main point he's making. So we're going to try to keep reminding ourselves of that. So first, what is this truism that Paul's going to give us? It says in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, this is not a profound theological statement that Paul is making. It's a truism, and we all totally understand this truism. It's not that profound. A truism is just something that is self-evident. It really doesn't need to be explained. It's obvious. We almost don't even need to mention it because everyone knows it. That's why he says, or do you not know? In other words, okay, we all know this. Particularly Jewish believers, you for sure know this. 
The law is only binding on people while they're still alive. That's not that profound of a statement. It's just a truism. Paul Paul assumes that every person, all the more Jews, are going to understand how laws work. Laws only have jurisdiction over the living. So those of you that are old like me, and remember Osama bin Laden? I mentioned his name in our membership class this weekend, and I asked the kids who knew who they were, and like one of them was like, I think I've heard that name. Osama bin Laden, notorious terrorist, mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, military intelligence searched for this man for years with the express purpose of bringing him to judgment. We will... Uh, capture him, we will make him stand trial and face the consequences of his crimes against humanity. They did eventually, after years, find him, but they never brought him to trial. Why did he never stand trial? Because they killed him, exactly. And so there's no trial to be had. He never stood trial. Why? Because the law doesn't have any jurisdiction over his dead body. The law can only do things to people who are alive. The limit of law is its jurisdiction over the living. It has none over the dead. It can't do anything to the person who has died. Its its jurisdiction, its reach, its verdicts, its judgments only affect the living. So that's the truism Paul makes. Not a profound statement. The law only applies to those who are still alive. And now he moves from that to an illustration, to an analogy he's going to use, and the analogy is marriage. So look now at verse 2. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Okay, we've got we to stay focused on Paul's point. This illustration is to prove the point Paul just made, so we're not going to push on the details so hard to make him say something he's not trying to say to us. There's a lot of commentary on this passage that is based in bad interpretation, that is based on taking an illustration or an analogy and pushing so hard on the details as to say this is a definitive statement about the topic of marriage and divorce. And it leads to wrong conclusions. That is bad biblical interpretation. We cannot turn an illustration or a parable into a doctrinal argument. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to to make a point vividly to us. And so this is not a statement about divorce and remarriage here in this passage. In fact, it doesn't even mention divorce. So it's kind of weird that we use it as a statement on divorce and remarriage. It's not meant to be a definitive statement about marriage. Some have tried to make it into that, but that is, that is wrong. Now, just to be clear, the Bible provides ample instruction on divorce and remarriage. We are not left wondering what it is that God desires in this realm, but this is not the place where it does it. This is an illustration Paul's using to prove a simple point, and the point is the law's reach only covers the living. Tracking with me? So it's a simple analogy to illustrate this point. The law doesn't have anything to say to the dead. And so Paul's narrow, limited point is marriage law actually illustrates that this is true. This is just one example of how we know this is true. If the husband's alive, the wife is bound to him. If the husband is dead, she's not. It's just a simple point that Paul is making, a simple analogy with one simple point. If someone is already married, they can't marry someone else. 
That would be an illegitimate marriage. That would be adultery, Paul says. That would be make you a polygamist. But if their spouse is dead, there's no issue. They're just as free as they were as a young person and free to do whatever they want to do in terms of marrying another person. Marriage vows, and this is why our marriage vows only reach this far. We don't, take, we don't stand here and, and Joel and Crystal will be getting married in just a few weeks. Don't cover your face. It's beautiful. And when they take their vows, I will not have them vow to one another throughout all eternity. In ending days, I pledge myself only to you. No, the vow is going to be until death separates us. Until death do us part, as long as we both shall live. After that, those vows aren't binding anymore. That's Paul's illustration. That's his simple point. He's not trying to do a profound doctrinal uh, deep dive into marriage and divorce. The illustration is simple. The law is binding only while people are alive, and if the person is dead, the law has no authority over them anymore. And so now Paul's going to apply this, this truth that he has just illustrated for us to the life of the believer in verses 4 and 5. He says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, that word likewise clues us in. He's still going to be talking about exactly the same thing. It connects the truism and the illustration that the law has no power over the dead to what he's about to say. And he says, likewise, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. The Greek word literally, the sense is, you've been put to death. You've been caused to die a violent death. This is what Paul's talking to us about in chapter 6 when he says that you've been united with Christ in his death. You've been put to death. So it's not that the law has died, it's that we have died. So important for us to keep in mind what Paul's actually saying. The law's not dead, we're dead. Our old self was under the just, righteous condemnation of the law. We were under the curse of the law. We were under the heavy crushing domination of the law because of our sin, but that old us has been put to death on the cross of Christ. We've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and so the curse of the law that was once upon us has been taken by him in its totality, in its fullness. The Lord Jesus Christ has borne the curse of the law for us, and our old self has died with him. And so our entire relationship to the law has now been completely transformed. Before you knew Christ, the law didn't have any ability to save you whatsoever. Paul told us this in chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul says what the law does is it makes us aware of sin. It clearly identifies what is righteousness, and what is sin, and it sticks its finger right in our face and says, guilty. And so Paul's told us there's no power to save there. There's no power to save through works of the law. The law couldn't justify you. It could only condemn you. That was its job. But now that you've been redeemed, the law still can't save you, but it can't condemn you anymore either. This is what Paul wants us to, to see. All the law can demand from you is your death, and you already died. That's Paul's point. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for you, you already died. He bore the condemnation, the judgment against you 
from the law, and he credits to you his perfect righteousness because he obeyed on your behalf. And so again, this Greek word here is literally, you have been made to die. It's a passive verb. We saw this just in the last couple of weeks where Paul's been using these passive verbs. And what a passive verb means is you didn't do this. You didn't cause this. This was done to you. This was a divine act. It was something that is done to you. It was God who planned out your salvation, not you who planned out your salvation. It was God who carried out your salvation, not you who carried out your salvation. It was God who redeemed you. It was God who placed you and secured you in Christ. It's all the work of God. And when you died, Paul says, when God put you, your old self, to death on the cross of Christ, the law lost all of its authority over you, and we are no longer standing under the weight of its condemnation. And Paul tells us the reason that God would do this for us. He says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Salvation is a complete change of relationships. Hostility, as we saw in the early chapters, towards God, rejection, renunciation, rebellion against Christ, and now we have been totally transformed to belong to him. We are no longer married to that first husband, the law. We're now married. We are now the bride of Christ. This is a total transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. And at the end of verse four, he says, it's in order that we may may bear fruit for God. This isn't a commandment. This is a statement of a fact. There's no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. Is your life not bearing any fruit in keeping with salvation? Does your life bear no fruit in keeping with repentance? And the obvious conclusion is, because you don't possess those things. It's because you don't possess saving faith. There's no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing person. Christ saved us in order that we may bear fruit. Salvation has a sure product because it has transformed us entirely. If you belong to Christ, you will bear fruit for God. Well, what is this fruit? What is it we should be looking for in our lives? Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is your life marked by these things? Not perfectly. But does it mark your life? Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Ephesians 5, verse 8. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that do good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What is the fruit that the Christian will bear? it's, It's the fruit of personal holiness. We will bear this fruit. We will live in ways that bring glory to God. We will live lives that are pleasing to God. So salvation has a sure product, a guaranteed product. Christians are going to produce this kind of fruit, and it's entirely the work of God within us. And so Paul reminds us, again, of what we were like before we came to Christ, after making this statement. This is is what God has done. This is why he has done it. This is the result that it will have in your life. He reminds us of where we came from, verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit 
for death. This verse is loaded. We'll try to get it through it fairly quickly here, but four keys to, to keep in mind. Flesh, sin, law, death. The flesh produces, our old flesh produces sin in us. That sin is excited by the law, and that sin has a sure result of death. So he says, while we were living in the flesh. This means he's describing not our state right now, but our fallen, unregenerate state prior to conversion. This is who we were. We were dominated under sin's reign. We were so dominated by sin's reign that when we heard the holy law of God, it made us want to sin all the more. What an amazing statement that is. While we were living in the flesh, we were, we were in the flesh. Now we're in Christ, but then we were in the flesh, deeply in the flesh, profoundly in the flesh, totally in the flesh. The, the imagery the scripture loves to use for the Christian is hidden in Christ, but before this, we were hidden in sin, completely submerged and surrounded and, and bound to it. This flesh, the, the Bible does use, we, we need to be careful not to get confused because the Bible will use this expression, the flesh, in a couple of different ways, and we need to not confuse them. First is, the flesh just means physically. We're flesh. We're a physical body. It doesn't have any evil connotation. Jesus Christ came in the flesh, John 1, verse 14. The word was made flesh. We don't take from that some evil connotation with that. 1 John 4, 2, anyone who does not confess that Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So when flesh is used that way, it just means our physical body. It doesn't have any evil connotations to it. It is just the reality, even the frailty of human existence, of the human body. But the second way it's used is the way Paul's using it here. We were ethically and morally in the flesh, and that always has an evil connotation. It speaks of the unredeemedness of humanity, what we were before we were saved. We were completely in the flesh, totally hostile to God to the extent that his holy law caused us to want to rebel all the more. But for Christians, this is a past tense experience. We're not in the flesh anymore. We're not in the flesh that way. We're no longer in the flesh again. We are in Christ. And so then why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep sinning if we're not bound to sin, if we're not bound to the, the sinful flesh in that way? Well, it's because you're not in the flesh, but the flesh remains in you. And it wants to rise up. As we've seen in chapter 6, sin wants to dominate you. Lingering sin in your life is not content to have just one little piece of you. It, it wants the whole thing. It wants to sit on the throne. It wants total domination. It wants that total submission from you again. It's why we must make no provision for the flesh whatsoever, or we'll find ourselves bound to sin. But again, sin doesn't own you. The old flesh does not own you. You do not have to submit to it. Paul says, though, in that former state, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. This word aroused is energeo. We, we, we have an English word that sounds like that, energy, energized. So the law energized our sinful impulses. How can that be? That's an incredible statement because the law of God is good. 
The law of God is pure. It's beautiful. We need to remember that. I think sometimes Christians forget that the law of God is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a pure thing. And if we forget that, we're going to twist what Paul's telling us here in chapter 7 of Romans. The law is a gift. The law is a blessing. The law is good. We, we see this in many places in Scripture. Let me just point you to one, Psalm 119. We spent many weeks studying this a couple of years ago. It's 176 verses dedicated to the glory of the law of God. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Verse 77, your law is my delight. 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. We could go all kinds of places. We could have gone to about a hundred more just in that one psalm. The law of God is good. It is pure. It is a gift. We ought to love it. We ought to embrace it. So how can this good law energize evil passion? Well, it doesn't in a couple ways. One, it reveals what evil is. On the most simplest level, we wouldn't know what sinful passions were. We would only know what passions were unless we had the law. And then we realized these passions are sinful passions. We wouldn't know what evil was if there wasn't the law that stood against it. And so in that way, sinful passion is energized by a good law because we know what sin is. But there's more going on to what Paul is saying. It's not just that the law tells us this is sinful. He said the law energizes our sinful impulse. What's going on in the unregenerate human heart is that nothing is more appealing to the unregenerate person than that which is forbidden. There's nothing that appeals to us more. And we still have that old flesh in us that rises up. Do you ever walk past a beautiful green lawn on a sidewalk on a nice sunny day, and you would have no impulse whatsoever to divert off of that sidewalk except that little sign. Keep off the grass. And you, who wears shoes everywhere you go and prefers to walk on the even cement, starts to think, there may be no greater pleasure in this life than if I were to remove my shoes and socks and walk upon this grass. Where did that idea come from? Well, because just tell people not to do something and watch them rush to try to do it. There's something in us that wants to rebel. There's something in us that desires to rebel. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress, and again, if you haven't read it, you should do so because I've said this before, I worry for your salvation if you've not read Pilgrim's Progress. I don't, I'm just kidding. It's a great book. He paints this vivid word picture of how this works, how, how, how it is that sin is aroused by the law, and Christian, the main character, this pilgrim who is, who is on his journey to be relieved of the burdens of his sin, he, he visits this man named Interpreter, and, and in Interpreter's house, there is this large room that is just covered in dust, just buried in dust, and, and Interpreter instructs a man that is there to take a broom and to begin sweeping the room, to begin cleaning the room. And as the man sweeps and the dust is stirred up and fills the room, making it impossible to see, Christian's nearly choked to death on the dust as it swirls up around him. An interpreter explains to him 
This is what the law does to sin. This is what the law does to sin. It agitates it. It stirs it up. It could never clean it. All it can do is stir it up and agitate it. It only makes it more evident. It only makes it more apparent and more unpleasant. And so this is Paul's application. We were in the flesh, and the flesh produces sinful impulses, and those sinful impulses are heightened and intensified by the law, and the result is the fruit of death. For the Christian, all that has changed. All that has changed for the Christian. We're dead to that now. We're alive in the resurrected Christ. We're no longer producing fruit for death. We're producing fruit for God. It has been a total transformation that has happened. And so Paul gives us this declaration in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. But now... Now that we're not in the flesh anymore, now that we're in Christ, I love that Paul does this. Paul will show us exactly who we were before our conversion. And just when we begin to despair at our own wretchedness, Paul says, but now, but God. Beautiful statements. He says, now we're released from the law. We've been discharged from any legal liability. The law says to us, you are guilty and you have to die because of your guilt. And Jesus died in our place and paid our penalty for us. He paid our death sentence and we died in him so that the law now has no claim on us whatsoever. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says, having died to that which held us captive. We were literally, as we've seen in the early chapters of Romans and even as, as Paul's continued, he's continued to bring this imagery of slavery to mind We were literally captives to our sinful impulses, having to obey them. But they don't hold us anymore. Remember, we saw this in chapter 6. You don't have to sin. You do not have to sin. You are free from that. Sin is not your master. Sin's power over you has been broken. And Paul now says, in the same way, you have been set free from the law. You've been set free from sin. Now, you've been set free from the law. The law cannot condemn you anymore. The law cannot kill you. The law can only require your death, but you've died. So there's nothing for the law to do to you anymore. We've been set free. What have we been set free for? What's the purpose? What have we been set free to? Paul says so that we could serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. Serve, again, it's that word we've seen Paul use in this book. It's, it's, it's the word slave. So we can be a slave. We can be an obedient slave who serves our master. Again, this is not a command. This is the sure result of salvation. It's not that we are supposed to serve. It's that we will serve. It's a sure product. So what kind of service is our Service. What kind of slaves are we? He says, of the spirit and not of the old way of the written code. In other words, we are not going to be submitting just to some external ritual. It's not going to be an outside obeying of the law of God with a heart that's unresponsive and cold and dead. Some kind of outside appearance of orthodoxy with a heart that's far from God. We're not working to earn our salvation. We're not working to improve our standing with God. 
No, it's a whole different kind of service. Paul says it's one that comes from inside to outside. Not from outside to inside, from inside to, to outside. It comes from the heart. Salvation gives us a brand new nature, a whole new nature. A nature that desires to love and to serve God from the heart. Friends, God doesn't require your begrudging submission. That doesn't please him. It doesn't glorify him. God gives to his people abundant, joy-filled life. That's what God desires from you. So obedience to God is never going to rob you of joy. Sin lies to you. Sin lies to you and tells you that real joy is found here. And this thing that I know God forbids, but I, I know I'm missing out and I know joy is found here, that is a lie because sin wants to kill you, it wants to own you, it wants to dominate you. Obedience to God will never rob you of joy. For the Christian, obedience to God produces joy. So then what should Christians do with the law of God? Just a couple practical things in closing. First, look to the law to see Christ. Look to the law so we can know him. Look to the law so we can trust him more. The law is not the goal of history. Christ is the goal of history. The law is not the goal of your life. Christ is the goal of your life. Christ didn't come in the flesh to lead us to the law. The law came to point us to Christ. The law is not the goal of Christ. Christ is the goal of the law. Look to the law to see Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Second, look into the law to test yourself. To see if we do know him. To see if we do trust him. To see if we do love Christ as we ought. The law is a way to test the genuineness of our love for Christ. When Paul says to examine yourself, see if you're in the faith, what standard are we going to use to do that? It's the good law that God has given us. Examine yourselves. Turn quickly now with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. We, we're going to wrap up with this. And you know me well enough that when I say quickly and that we're wrapping up, it means absolutely nothing. But we really are going to move through this pretty quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. God is the one who made us sufficient to be members, uh, ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul, Paul, Paul's going to follow this statement up by describing how the law had come with great glory on Mount Sinai. And because of this, Moses' face shone with a reflection of this glory such that when he came to the people, he put a veil over his face so the people wouldn't see the glory as it faded. And then Paul takes this, this veil as a symbol of the true glory and goal of the law that was concealed from most of Israel. So starting in verse 14, Paul relates this to Christ. He said, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is 
freedom. This is what happens to Christians. That veil is taken away. The unbelievers veiled from seeing the glory of Christ, from seeing the glory of the law. All it does is excite rebellion and sin in us. But for the Christian, the veil is taken away. We see what the law is about. We see the law's glory. We see the law's goal. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. This comes from the Lord who is spirit. What do we see when the veil is removed from us? We see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way we should look at the law in order to see Jesus more clearly. We have died to the law as a means of saving us. So that that veil might be lifted. So that the law might be a means of seeing Jesus and loving Jesus. We couldn't do that before. But God has made it possible now by removing that veil from us. And when we do that, Paul says we are transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Salvation changes a person. Salvation transforms a person. This is the Christian life then, friends, a life of seeing Jesus a life of treasuring Jesus and of being totally changed by that seeing and that treasuring. And so for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your own soul, give yourself utterly to knowing Christ. Well, this is what we need, to give ourselves utterly to knowing Jesus, to trusting Jesus, to loving Jesus, and you will be changed. You will be transformed. You will be changed, as Paul says so beautifully, from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ. And the sure result of that salvation, you will bear fruit for God that starts with your own heart. Oh, this is such good news, friends. This is such glorious news. This is such a glorious gospel. Who could have imagined something like this? May we all examine ourselves in light of this truth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious work in salvation that transforms us utterly, completely. And Lord, we are aware of lingering sin in our hearts that causes us still to to rebel and to reject your good law. I pray, Lord, that you would in your mercy to us, quickly convict us by your spirit. Transform us, continue to to shape us into the likeness of Christ, that our lives become more and more conformed to the holiness of our God. And I pray, Lord, for those particularly who don't know you, those who have come here this morning perhaps comfortable in feeling that they are doing just fine and that there's, there, there's no need for them to fully surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. I pray in your mercy, in your kindness, that you by your Spirit would take your good law and open their eyes, remove the veil, that they could see their guilt, their condemnation before you and run to the Lord Jesus Christ where they might be saved, where they might find hope pray, God, that you would do this knowing that 
There's no persuasive words we could speak that would cause this to happen. It's not a work of us, as, as Paul has shown us, that, that we must be put to death on the cross of Christ. Our old man, I pray, Lord, that you would, in your mercy, do that for, for those who are here that don't know you. Give them the gift of repentance to turn and renounce sin, to trust in you, no matter how difficult, no matter how much they have identified their very existence by that sin. Give to them that grace, we pray. Cause them to run to Christ and to find in him joy and hope and salvation, we pray. And Father, make us faithful ambassadors of this gospel, faithful ambassadors of this kingdom, and this Lord who rules over all that he has made, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.